electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. Welcome to The Exchange, everyone. I'm John Ford, in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's coming up. Retail wrecked again. Target has too much inventory, forcing it to cut prices, which is going to hurt earnings. But is this just a Target thing? How much of it is an industry-wide issue? We will check in with that. Also, Congress and crypto, a bipartisan bill to define and regulate the industry, introduced today. What does it say? What will it actually do? We will have some answers. And in earnings exchange, we're taking a close look at consumer spending. Campbell Soup, Brown Foreman, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, the story and the trade on each one. But we begin, of course, with the markets. Dom Chu has got the numbers. We're green, John. That's the big thing. I mean, we started off negatively, so to speak. And in, at one point in the day, the Dow was down 270 four points. So we've gotten back quite a bit in terms of the overall trade so far. Even at 274, it wasn't a massive decline, but still it showed some weaker sentiments. And a lot of that had to do with some of the news we'll talk about in a bit. But the S&P 4127 up five points down one or up one tenth of one percent. Similar percentage move for the Nasdaq Composite, which is now above 12,000, 12,080 the last trade. They're up 19 points on the day. Retail has got to be the big theme so far in this morning's trade. Target in that blockbuster, really roiling type uh, announcement from this morning saying that they're going to take some near-term profit margin and profit hits in order to set themselves up for possibly more success down the line during that all-important holiday shopping season. That reduced forecast took it out of the sales for Target, but we've gotten back a lot of what we lost in the early morning session. We're only down 3% right now for Target, $155 per share, thereabouts, maybe a little less than that. Walmart, 122, spot 10, the last trade down 2%. 2% losses for Best Buy, Lowe's. You can kind of see the theme there. Much of the big box retail side of things taking a hit from that Target announcement. And the Spider S&P retail ETF, ticker XRT, is down one half of 1% right now. And the stock of the day, a mega cap out there. It's almost synonymous with American oil and gas at this point. We're talking ExxonMobil, the, almost the definition of oil majors. That and Chevron are the two maybe most emblematic companies when it comes to the American energy side of things. The stock is up 4% right now, a very strong move. The reason why it's important is because at these levels, $102 a share, you've got to go all the way back to July of 2014 to get to the same level that you're seeing right now with ExxonMobil. So at this stage, ExxonMobil, a huge upside mover. And no surprise there, oil and gas prices are on the rise. John, I would also point out, given this move in ExxonMobil, maybe timely to see David Faber's documentary on ExxonMobil at the crossroads later on this month, premiering 8 p.m. on June 22nd, right here on CNBC. John, back over to you. Indeed, Dom. Takes a lot more money to drive to the crossroads, but once you're there, you got to make a decision. There you go. Dom, thanks. Let's kick it off with retail Target sending a warning across the industry today as it says it will take a hit to profit as it cancels order and marks down unwanted merchandise. CEO Brian Cornell telling CNBC, we thought it was prudent for us to be decisive, act quickly, get out in front of this, address and optimize our inventory 
in the second quarter. Uh, the company added that its current inventory was 43% higher than it was a year ago, totaling more than $15 billion. With us now, Brett Rose, CEO of United National Consumer Suppliers, an international wholesale distribution company. It provides products to Macy's, TJX, Amazon resellers, and more. Brett, what to make of this really? I, I got a friend who's in the business of sort of home goods, supplying Bed Bath & Beyond and some others, and was talking about inventory piling up and having to question what to do with that, dealing with this spending slowdown and really this misjudgment that a lot of retailers had about what was going to sell through. So it feels to me like this isn't just a target issue. What's your case? John, thanks for having me back. First of all, you should totally connect me with your friend and uh, I'll go over with what to do with that inventory. You know, this is a uh, this is this is a bit of a whiplash supply chain that Target is dealing with. It's it's too much too late, right? People stopped doing services, stopped doing traveling, and we're spending a ton of money on consumer goods. Big box retail became too reactionary, and they just started buying. So what happened virtually overnight as the world reopened, ports reopened, travel started again, is consumerism dried up, stimulism dried up, and really consumption of goods hit a cliff quicker and faster than we ever thought it would. And the retailers are feeling the effects and feeling the whiplash now. So how much can we trust the second half guidance and expectations, though, if they couldn't see this coming? I mean, there's an expectation that the consumer is going to remain strong. But I don't know. I I just got a feeling that consumers are spending now because it's summer. They want to take that trip they've been putting off for a long time. But interest rates are higher. The cost of borrowing against uh, your home equity is higher. I mean, how's that going to turn out? Do you think the retailers really know? Yeah, well, you know, John, you could sort of use that argument for every season, right? Come August, September, consumerism is going to be back to school. Then we go into the fall. And then, of course, we go into the holiday season, which is, you know, Q4 is, is really the Holy Grail or Super Bowl. I, I think it's actually a really interesting opportunity for consumers and for certain retail segments like off price. You've got warehouses and warehouses in California filled with canceled Target goods, tan- canceled Walmart goods. Who is right for the picking for this is retailers like TJX, Ross, Five Below, and Dollar Tree. And the street is you know, evident their stock prices are up. They are positioned as retailers to capitalize on that stock, pass the savings on to the consumer, in some cases just keeping the prices where they were, sort of pre-inflationary issues, which will keep the prices down at least through December. But I think come January, we're going to see a massive spike in consumer goods because we're in this challenge for at least a year. Wow. Okay, that's important to note. Also, while that strikes me as an important uh, playbook, at least in the short term, in the medium term, do investors need to be going back through earnings reports and earnings transcripts and figuring out who really got efficient over the last two years, who was really good about curbside pickup, about omni-channel retail? Uh, Isn't that what's going to really help um, certain retailers perform optimally and manage inventory based on the data and what consumers want? Well, yes and no. Every retailer, to some degree, got very effective with Omnichannel or they're gone, right, because they couldn't survive the pandemic. What we really need to look at is beyond the earnings report is what's their strategy for sourcing? Because right now, you bet China lead times have gone from 8 to 12 weeks to 25 weeks. So what that has done is it's removed the ability for a retailer properly predict. There's a 80% accuracy when there's an eight-week lead time. There's a 40% accuracy when there's 25% lead time. So who the street really needs to look at is the guys like a Marmax and a Ross, the 
the ones that have alternate supply channels that aren't ordering three, six, nine, 12 months out, because you have to be able to turn on a dime in this market. And that's what off price can do because their sourcing schedules are much smaller than say a traditional big box retailer who plans six months out. All right. Great detail. Thank you. Brett Rose from United National Consumer Suppliers. Uh, Let's turn now to the markets. U.S. dollar continues to get stronger, hitting a two-week high earlier today, up more than 6% so far this year. My next guest is staying away from American export names for that reason. For what he's buying instead, I'm joined now by David Hardin, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Summit Global Investments. Uh, David, okay, I want to know what you're buying, but I also want to know, why do you hate IBM so much? That's a good question. Thanks for having me on your show, John. And as that is Miss Kelly, but uh, it's a good show today. You know, listen, IBM is a great company. It's doing a lot of good things with Adobe. It's had some good announcements, and they're trying to, you know, always get better and, and grow their earnings. But the fact is, is they have a lot of money from overseas, and they have to convert that revenue into U.S. dollars. And so when we have a strong U.S. dollar, it hurts their earnings. And that's the bottom line that we're trying to do here is find companies that have really good earnings or that are growing their earnings. And with an IBM, we got to be cautious of that because that all has to come back into strong U.S. dollars. And so when you have that type of uh, company out there, that's a company where in the past, many, many times IBM has blamed the strong dollar for their kind of missed earnings. We don't want to have that in the portfolio. You want to look for that downside risk and avoid it. And that's one reason right now I would recommend to avoid IBM. On the other side, you talk about ExxonMobil. We love ExxonMobil. It's a great play in energy. They're doing wonders right now in the sense of their stock price. They're, and everything's really clicking right now in oil. And so you have to have some exposure to energy. And Exxon's a great company. Chevron's another one that we own. Great companies here that I would highly recommend people have exposure to. So from my standpoint, gas is going to remain elevated. I think there's a lot more to energy stocks than just the war mm. uh, over in the Ukraine. So well, those are some of my reasons. Well, but if the economy slows as the, the Fed is planning for it to, uh, a lot of people are hoping, of course, for a soft landing, not a recession. Won't energy react quickly to that, just as it does when the economy is strong and people are out there driving and traveling? Yeah, absolutely. It will react. But its lead time is going to give you enough time. This is something that you can actually get into still with energy. You can do well. There's a lot of choppy volatility out of there. There's not a lot of downside risk. We don't know if we're going to go right into a recession. We don't know how the Fed is going to handle this inflation. The one thing we do know is they're going to try. So they're definitely going to try. They're going to try to do it without impacting the economy so much. Okay, it impacts the economy. It doesn't impact the economy. The reality is is we're still so dependent on gas. Those gas prices are not going to come down too much. So I think the downside risk here is very subdued, a lot of stability, and still some upside. So to me, exposure there is warranted or more exposure there is still warranted. Okay. You don't like Zoom, but you like chocolate bars. Um, What's so great about Hershey in this environment? Well, you know, Hershey's a good, good company because it's domestic, and a lot of its earnings come from domestic. So a strong dollar doesn't hurt Hershey as much as it may hurt, for example, IBM. So I don't know about you, but sometimes if there is a bad economy, we might want chocolate in order to get us through it. So I think chocolate's a good, good play here. It's a lower risk, uh, lower beta type of company as well. It has high quality earnings. And let's face it, 
it probably has some inflationary ability to pass along some of those costs to all of us, and we'll continue to eat our sweets. So strong dollar, I think, favors domestic, um, you know, if you will, ex- exporters um, within the United States. Yeah, well, when people stress eat, that's probably <laughs> bullish for chocolate bars. And in this market, uh, there's been quite a bit of that. David, thank you. David Harden with Summit Global Investments. We've got a news alert now in the bond market. Three-year notes up for auction. Rick Santelli tracking the action from the CME. Hey, Rick. Hi, John. Well, it seems as though investors really did not pile into the three-year note auction. We had 44 billion of them starting off 96 billion in supply. And the yield at this auction, 2.927, which was well above the when issue market, which was 2.917. So right off the bat, we take a ding on pricing. The bid to cover and the dealer takedowns were pretty much on top of the 10 auction averages. What was left was a split decision. If you look at indirects, 51.5. That was the lightest since October of 21. And that represents a very important group. There's foreign investors there that did not show up. The direct bidders, that was very strong. The best since Dece of 19 at 23.6. The problem there is, of course, that they're large institutions and funds. They usually do step up. So a C- minus on the grade. You see yields kicked up right after that auction buttoned up. And we do see that 10-year note yield along with the 5-year note yield both hovering near 3%. John? Ouch. C-. minus. Yeah, Charlie Brown territory. Rick, thanks. Coming up, a special consumer edition of Earnings Exchange, Campbell Soup, Brown Foreman, and Ollie's Bargain Outlet reporting results tomorrow morning. We're going to have the action, the story, and the trade on all three. But first, Bitcoin back below 30000 losing more than half its value from its all-time high of nearly 69000 in November. Up next, the latest on the lawmakers who are looking to regulate crypto on Capitol Hill. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside you'll find institutional quality expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income at eatonvance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to The Exchange. The crypto sell-off continues with Bitcoin dipping below 30000 Ether and Litecoin 
also in the red. Now two senators are out with a bipartisan bill aimed at regulating the crypto market. Elon Moy is in Washington with the latest. Elon? Well, John, this is the most comprehensive bill we've seen so far, and the goal is to establish new standards for the industry and also carve out clear regulatory lanes. The Responsible Financial Innovation Act is co-sponsored by Republican Senator Cynthia Lummis of Wyoming and Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. And on CNBC this morning, they said that both the industry and investors are craving certainty. Once you create basic infrastructure around these types of digital assets, where there are disclosure requirements, where they have a regulator, uh, where there's full transparency, that is going to create the safety and soundness in the market that will give other people comfort. Now, this proposal tries to distinguish between different types of digital assets. Fully decentralized cryptos like Bitcoin and Ether would be considered commodities and therefore regulated by the CFTC. But assets that meet the threshold of a security would be overseen by the SEC. The proposal also sets new standards for stable coins, requiring them to hold 100% reserves in high, highly liquid assets. It also creates a special process for banks to issue stable coins and also creates a new charter for other financial institutions to do the same. The early response from industry so far has been positive. The Blockchain Association called it a major milestone. But John, this is just the beginning of the conversation on Capitol Hill. Back over to you. Elon, thanks. I I guess we'll see how much of this actually affects the crypto market. So speaking of which, Let's get into how this legislation might change things. For more, I'm joined by Emily Parker, Coindesk Executive Director of Global Content. Emily, uh, this comes at an interesting time after we know the CFTC is suing uh, Gemini, the exchange that was started by the Winklevoss brothers, over you know, how they represented the way things work over there. How is regulation of of Bitcoin, et cetera, by the CFTC likely to to change this market, you think? I think that the most important thing is that this should bring some sort of regulatory clarity if it goes through. Now, remember, this is Washington and this is Congress, so nothing is going to happen immediately. And it's quite unlikely that anything will happen this year. But if we do see some version of this bill pass, then yeah, it could bring some certainty to a market that people are just really confused about. People don't know what's a security and what's a commodity. People don't know what the SEC is doing and what the CFTC is doing. There's a lot of questions about consumer protection. And I don't think that this is going to solve all of these questions, but I think just anything that could just make people think that there's a little bit more clarity in the way things are regulated, I think will be good for the market. But, you know, I don't get the sense that retail traders, and I I hesitate to use the word investors in all cases, care whether Bitcoin is a commodity, right, or a security. They just think, hey, this is going to be worth something. I I think it's going up, perhaps. And I I wonder if what the perspectives are on whether regulation helps make clear referees and rules of the road so people are more eager to play? Or does it make the game less exciting in a way, uh, taking away some of that volatility or even price spikes and have fewer people in the market and therefore prices go down? 
I think that's a reasonable question. So a lot of some of the excitement in the crypto market, as we've seen, is not necessarily good excitement. It's bad excitement, right? Because just because there's a lack of clarity about the SEC versus the CFTC, that doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. In fact, there's been a lot of criticism of the SEC that it's basically regulation by enforcement. So, you know, you come into the U.S. and you do something and then you get in trouble and you didn't even realize you were breaking a rule. But your question about retail investors is reasonable. I mean, I think a lot of this is targeted at, you know, crypto projects crypto startups, you know, that would come into the U.S., set up shop here as opposed to going to Singapore, where it's relatively clear. But as for retail, I mean, look, there's a really important symbolic component here, because first of all, it shows that like the U.S. is not going to ban cryptocurrency if they're putting this much effort into regulating it. Right. And I think it just generally we've seen in the past that sort of these efforts to regulate the market, it's kind of like a stamp of approval in a funny way. And I think that does send a message to retail investors. What is your takeaway from the way uh, Bitcoin in particular, but the crypto markets have been behaving over 2022 so far. There, there seemed to be a period of time where it was tied pretty closely to movements in the NASDAQ. It seemed to me like there was a bit uh, of a separation over the last couple of weeks in that. What are investors acting on? Is there any consensus anymore in what's driving the prices of something like Bitcoin? It doesn't seem to be an inflation hedge. What is it? That's right. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if there was ever any consensus on what drives Bitcoin prices. It always depends on who you ask. But, you know, for 2022, you're exactly right. It's 2022 has been largely defined by a very high correlation between crypto and equities. And on the one hand, that's a little bit disappointing, right? Because what's the point of Bitcoin if it's not this unique asset, if it's just acting exactly like equities? And what's the point? And I think people are asking that. You know, Bitcoin also is supposed to be an inflation hedge. That's such a big part of its identity. And now, you know, in theory, this should be Bitcoin's moment to shine. I mean, we are in, you know, real inflation now, and we're not really seeing that. So yeah, I mean, I think there's some disappointment that Bitcoin is not acting like a safe haven asset. It's not acting like a hedge against inflation. But you know, again, this is a longer term narrative. So I think we're going to have to see if it does start serving those purposes over the longer term. Yeah, it always becomes clearer in the longer term. But without a time machine, it's hard to make a profit. <laughs> Emily Parker, thank you. Thank you. Still ahead, semiconductor stocks have been getting squeezed all year, but we're starting to see some signs that the chip crunch could be easing. We'll tell you what those signs are, who stands to benefit. Plus, our targets troubles a canary in the coal mine for retail. We're gonna ask the CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors with that retailer coming off a nice earnings beat. And as we head to break, the Dow is at session highs with Salesforce, Chevron, and Apple leading the way. Uh, the exchange is back after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now, well, uh, fractionally higher on the major indices, pretty close to session highs. Dow high is up 134, low down 274. And you see there it's up about 111 right now. If we look at the sectors, Target continues to weigh on consumer discretionary, while energy is the big outperformer as oil hovers around 118 a barrel. Within energy, we've got a number of new all-time highs, including ConocoPhillips, Marathon Petroleum, and Valero. Cloud and cybersecurity stocks also moving higher today. CrowdStrike building on yesterday's gains after Morgan Stanley upgraded it to overweight. It's now up 10% in two days. And Chinese tech stocks are in the green. Pinduoduo and Bilibili up around 8%. The Crane Shares China Internet ETF, KWeb, uh, aiming for its fifth straight week of gains. That would be its longest streak since January 2020. Now, let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Ty. John, thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. A Democratic senator participating in bipartisan talks on new gun regulations says he hopes he can announce a framework on a compromise by the end of the week. Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy was at the White House today to update President Biden on the discussions. At a Senate hearing today, the son of a woman shot and killed in a Buffalo supermarket a couple of weeks ago challenged lawmakers to, in, her, in his words, excuse me, stop the cancer of white supremacy and the domestic terrorism it inspires. For her to be murdered, taken away from us by someone so full of hate, is impossible to understand and even harder to live with. But we're more than hurt. We're angry. We're mad as hell because this should have never happened. Meantime, also on Capitol Hill, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen urged Congress to reduce gun violence, saying research shows school shootings have a negative impact on survivors and, in the long run, the economy. Tonight on the news with Chef Smith, is there a shortage of pilots for passenger flights? We'll tell you why airlines say yes, but the pilots' union says no. That's at 7 Eastern with Shep Smith. Meantime, John, back over to you. All right, we'll look for that. Tyler, thanks. Still ahead, Ollie's, Campbell's Soup, and Brown Foreman on deck with earnings, inflation, margin management, and the consumer, key with all three. We're going to get you ready for the reports in earnings exchange coming up next. And during June, we're celebrating Pride Month and featuring some of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here's Francesca's CEO, Andrew Clark. It's more important than ever to celebrate Pride Month. Pride is the moment for us to stand up and represent our community while standing alongside other minorities in a celebration of the defense of diversity and equality in this country. Pride is happy. Pride is positive. But pride is serious and pride is necessary. Welcome back, everybody. It's been another roller coaster trading day for stocks as Target's warning on profit margins briefly sent the averages into the red on fears of weakening consumer strength. With that in mind, let's get the story, the action, and the trade on three consumer focused companies set to report results tomorrow before the bell. It is time for earnings exchange. First up, Ollie's Bargain Outlet. Shares higher into the print and down just 1% on the year as consumers flock to discounters 
as they face record high inflation. CNBC.com retail reporter Lauren Thomas has the story here. And CNBC contributor Boris Schlossberg joins us with the trade. He is also manager of FX Strategy at BJ Asset Management. Lauren, uh, it seems to just my you know, novice mind that Target's pain could be the gain of somebody like Ollie's because if you want to offload stuff in your Target, don't you send it to Ollie's? Bingo. Yes. No, I, I think that a lot of uh, analysts and investors would agree with that sentiment and believe that to be true. I think that that's one big reason. And, and you see Ollie's shares actually rising this afternoon ahead of that report tomorrow when the rest of the retail sector is down largely, um, because there is that idea that Ollie's could really stand out here. They're in the business of buying up that overstocked inventory, like you said, then selling it at a discount to the consumer. You add on top of that the fact that a lot of consumers are searching for a good Deal right now, right? You have um, that cash-strapped consumer that is shopping on a budget, and Ollie's Bargain Outlet is, is perfect for them. You know, the company spoke um, last quarter when they reported results about how they were already starting to see some of that market share coming their way. They were noticing, you know, the trade downs that we've heard Walmart and Target discuss. Um, but you know, that's helping the top line. Of course, you know, they still have those supply chain pressures and you know higher labor expenses that they're facing, like much of the rest of the retail industry. So that's going to weigh on margins in the near term. But there is an expectation from the analysts that I've spoken to that Ollie's could raise its outlook for the fiscal year, again, because of what you just mentioned, with Target and the rest of the retail industry having these extra inventories. Yeah, they could have, I guess, higher supply at a good price and higher demand from cash-strapped consumers. But, Boris, what worries me about this potentially is, is this just a, a sugar rush, a sugar high? Is this a long-term benefit for the discounters if the economy really does slow down, given that Ollie's isn't down that much into the year? Might there be pain ahead relative to expectations? Well, I think it's, first of all, it's down quite a lot off its all-time highs. It's down by half, right? And secondly, it's found quite a lot of support, I think, at this 50 level. In fact, trading today is super bullish if you look at the charts. Um, up 5% on a day because market is really anticipating, I think, exactly what you were talking about, positive news into the next 9 to 18 months. And I think that's really the key. If you sort of believe we're going to be in this dog-eat-dog retail environment where consumers are going to be much, much more careful about what they choose and, and where they buy things, Ollie's really stands to benefit. So to me, this is probably the strongest stock of all three that we're going to talk about today as far as just secular fundamental growth goes. If you don't want to chase it here, you could sell the 22, um, excuse me, you could sell the 45 July 22nd uh, puts for and basically pick up uh, the stock at 15% discount to current price on a basis um, if you just sort of want to position yourself a little bit underneath this price. But overall, of all the stocks we talk about today, this one is I feel the strongest about uh, for the upside because it's really well positioned for the current economy. All right. I want to say thanks to Lauren Thomas. Next up, you know what else people do when money gets tight? They eat canned soup. Let's talk about Campbell's shares slightly higher today, up about 7% for the year. The street is expecting organic sales growth of about 3%. Dominic Chu has the story on this one. Dom? All right, so from the discretionary side of things, John, of retail, right? Those things that are kind of the more everyday things that we talk about, the stuff we have to spend on, obviously choices we can make with regard to eating, drinking, personal care. For Campbell's, though, it's been a wildish ride netted out to a whopping, like you said, 6% gain on the year and a 6% loss over the last 12 months. As for what to expect on the earnings front, it's 61 cents a share. It's a consensus estimate. Revenues, $2.04 billion thereabouts. The options market is pricing in a 4.5% move up or down on the heels of this report. 
and investors are going to be closely watching for how the maker of everything from its namesake soups to Prego pasta sauces to Cape Cod potato chips will navigate that pricing pressure that we've been seeing. It's been trying to manage those profit margins through passing along price increases to customers, also streamlining its supply chain. Now, Snacks, John, that's going to be a key part of the story at Campbell's. Growth at that division has been responsible for a lot of different things and strength there. We're talking Pepperidge Farm cookies, snacks, goldfish crackers, those Cape Cod chips I mentioned. That snacks business is going to be something you have to watch for very closely. Yeah, we talked about Hershey's earlier and and maybe the stress eating involved. Um, You know, so Boris, uh, I, I guess we're going to you on this one as well, are we? Yeah, let's talk about uh, Campbell's Soup. So uh, I worry about the input costs here, as Dom was alluding to, cost of cans, uh, cost of the the veggies and and all of that that goes into the soups. Is that important to see how Campbell's manages? Yeah, and don't forget the transport costs, which I think a lot of people are taking for granted. I think those are going to be also weighing. I can't get too excited about Campbell's Soup. I think, you know, the the problem with the company is that I think there's just a limited amount of demand for a company's product here. It's very, you know, process-oriented food. I think consumers are not going to be getting out much more from their houses, so they're going to be looking for fresher, better food. So to me, the organic growth here is going to be very, very small. And you can see the market is sort of uninterested in the story. I do think... If you're an income-oriented investor, this is an interesting stock because it's relatively cheap. It has a 3.5% or 3.3% dividend, and you could probably sell you know, quarterly options against it 10% out of the money and just basically turn it into an income play, trade. That's about the best thing I can say about a Campbell's as a, as a trade at this point. All right. Not so excited about the goldfish crackers, and I always liked the Pepperidge Farm cookies growing up. Milano's, come yeah. on. I thought that I was going to eat those every night when I became an adult. Anyway, finally, Brown Foreman, the Jack Daniels maker, is down about 10% this year, but outperforming competitor Diageo. In its latest report, the company did warn of ongoing headlines from supply chain disruptions and inflationary costs. Dom, what about this one? So a lot of the folks I talk to these days could use a cocktail. They use the Manhattans. They use the bourbon for those. So given the market volatility we've seen, Brown Forman may intuitively be benefiting from more demand for its liquor, especially in the wake of the pandemic, but the stock isn't showing it. So it's down on the year about, you know, you can see there are 10, 11%. Uh, down 18% over the last 12 months. As for the earnings expectations, it is going to be for 27 cents a share, 832 million bucks in terms of revenues. Jack Daniels, obviously big for them. Woodford Reserve, that's a more premium bourbon brand. And then Aradura Tequila, also a big seller for them as well. All part of that premium brand portfolio over there. The demand is there. There's no doubt about it. They've been selling this stuff as, as many liquor places have been since the depths of the pandemic. But it's the cost side of things like you mentioned, right? It's going to be things like materials costs, glass costs are increasing, labor costs, of course, are big for this particular industry as well. So the story is about what it's going to take to get investors excited about this stock, to get it moving in the right direction, because the growth is there, especially in certain key parts of the market in the U.S. and even internationally, especially for that kind of higher-end bourbon. Okay. Well, Boris, you're not excited about soup from a can how about bourbon from a bottle? The margins, at least, tend to be better on the brown stuff. The margins are good, but, you know, the stock is trading like, like a high-tech stock. The problem with the stock isn't necessarily the product portfolio, but it's just way more expensive than Diageo on a valuation basis. And I really like Diageo's portfolio better than, um, than this because I think generally at, at this point, yes, you know, Jack Daniels obviously is, is a, it's a tremendous brand name, but their growth is expected to be about 5 to 7%, perhaps maybe, maybe um, up to double digits. Yet the stock is trading at 40 times earnings. I think it just has a 
very, very tall order in this high interest rate environment to try to make any headway. So to me, it's not a stock that I'd really want to be participating at this point. I'd much rather own Diageo than this um, as far as going forward. But Ollie's bargain outlet is what you really like. I guess if, the, if those other That's, two stocks go into Ollie's, then maybe Boris will be more excited. Dom? Or drink more Manhattan. Well, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe Ollie's will be selling it. Maybe he'll be selling Jack Daniels on, on a discount. <laughs> then it'll be. Uh, Dom, Boris, thank you. Now let's get a quick programming note. The CEO of Brown Foreman is going to join Power Lunch tomorrow to discuss the results and more live at 2 p.m. Eastern. Do not miss that. And still ahead, it's not just the chip makers. Companies like Apple and Ford also getting punished by the chip shortage. But relief might be on the way. We will discuss. First, though, new CNBC survey results revealing just how wide-ranging and impactful pandemic unemployment benefits were. The numbers and what it means for the economy, up next. Welcome back. Unemployment benefits paid during the pandemic had a profound effect on workers' lives and the economy, according to a new CNBC survey. And Steve Leisman joins me now with that data. Steve? Yeah, John, this is really interesting. It would appear that both the supporters and critics of the emergency pandemic unemployment benefits, they both have a point. The CNBC All-America All America Workforce Survey asked almost 2,000 Americans, those working, those out of work and retired, how they were affected. And here's how they answered. Asked uh, if, here's the bad part of it first. Uh, did it enable you to remain out of work? longer than you otherwise would have? 55% of those employed said yes, 50% of those not employed said yes, and 51% of those who retired during the pandemic also said yes. But here's the good part. This is uh, coming from the survey of those who are employed. Did it enable you to spend more time finding the right job? 62% said yes, so that was one of the things supporters touted about it. Did it help you get out of debt? 48%. And among parents, 69% said it enabled them to pay for Childcare. About a quarter of employed people report having received benefits in the past two years. 42% of those currently employed, currently unemployed, did as well. Now, how about pandemic unemployment benefits that continue to enable you to remain out of work? 32% said yes. 68% said no. So it's come down quite a bit in terms of getting people back to the workforce. Receiving these UI benefits was even across the political spectrum. 25% of employed Trump voters and 25% of employed Biden voters reporting receiving them with some differences regionally, a little bit more on the West and uh, in, in, in the Northeast than in the middle of the country. But of course, they had stricter COVID requirements or restrictions. So um, it did the things the critics said it did, and it did the things the supporters said it did. So more important perhaps now is what's the impact in the future now that they're not still, the benefits aren't still coming. People who use them to pay for childcare as the prices of everything else are going up, are there implications for consumer spending? Absolutely, that, Jonathan, right? that's a great question because we did ask, what have you done with them? About 30 to 40%, depending upon the group you talk about, still have some left over, savings and invested. So economists talk a lot about the idea that there's a lot of savings that's gonna power the consumer through these tough times, enable them to meet the, uh, uh, the higher bills that are coming with inflation. Some of that seems to come from these benefits that are out there and still not completely saved, and did not you, completely spent. Did you get any sense, so consumer credit, consumers have been taking on a lot of credit during this time yeah. as well. So how do these two things balance out? Like the, the stimulus gave people more money in their pocket, but they're still taking on more debt? I mean, I wonder. John, there are things that we don't know if they're good signs or bad signs. 
I've always been puzzled over 30 years of reporting the economy on, for example, McDonald's. Mm. If more people are eating at McDonald's, does that mean they have more money? Or does it mean they have less money? Mm. The same is true with credit. People in, who feel good about the future can take on more credit. Now, we know what you're saying. The underlying supposition of what you're saying is absolutely right. We saw credit surge. What we don't know is, did it surge because people are confident or because they're stretching? And everybody's going to look at that piece of data and come up with what they want from what, you know, what they want uh, the answer to be. I guess if you get the double quarter pounder at McDonald's, then that's a good sign because you're splurging. But if you're John, you know, don't, cutting out don't, the front. don't get the double quarter pounder. No, I, I won't. Don't. I, do. I can tell you from, you know. Yeah, I'm in my mid-40s now. Go with the single. Anymore. Yeah. You know, the Diet Coke and don't get the fries. You can trust me. Steve Weissman, thanks. <laughs> Coming up, shares of Academy Sports and Outdoors climbing on an earnings beat. But it's not all good news. Sales actually fell year over year, and the company lowered guidance. We're going to talk to CEO Ken Hicks about the results, whether they like Target, could be facing overstock issues. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Academy Sports and Outdoors up more than 7%, about 7.5% after reporting stronger than expected earnings and revenue in the first quarter. And while Academy did open its first new store since 2019, the company lowered 2023 guidance and said that both inventories and its shipping costs increased. Joining me now is Chairman and CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors, Ken Hicks. Ken, uh, great to talk to you. So I was just talking to Steve Leisman about... Uh, stimulus impact, and you talked about that a bit on the call. That's part of the reason why things are down by comparison. But do you yet have visibility into what the normalized trend is going to be? Yes, we we feel that uh, we actually are in pretty good shape. We uh, were up 38% uh, the first quarter last year. This quarter we were down seven. So we've been running now about 30% up on, a, on the uh, two-year basis. So uh, it seems to me that in an inflationary environment, people might want to just go outside and enjoy the simple things a bit more, which could benefit you. At the same time, though, the, the cost of some of those simpler things going up a bit. So even within the categories that you deal in, where are you seeing continued strength in consumer demand? We are seeing continued strength in areas like team sports. The kids are still going out and playing. Camping uh, is one where people are are going out and our apparel and footwear businesses has picked up also. So what is happening at the same time when it comes to labor and construction? I believe about 40% of your stores at this point are in Texas, but you're looking to expand out of there. How does this uh, yeah. economic environment affect those expansion plans? Well, we've, we've uh, looking for sites has become a challenge, but we've got a great team doing them. And uh, we've had to go further out in terms of reserving the materials to build the stores than we normally would uh, because of, of material shortages. And the cost has gone up, but it's uh, fortunately we've got a model that will allow us to build the stores uh, economically and uh, have productive stores that'll be uh, cash flow positive in the first year. Ken, what are you doing on labor costs and how is churn in the workforce trending? We're seeing more churn than we have in the past, but we're a fun place to work. And so we have taken up wages uh, over the past several years, and uh, we have not had a problem in our stores 
uh, hiring people to take care of our customers. Um, what is the impact? And there's been a tragedy in Texas uh, recently in, in Uvalde. I want to note that uh, you do have firearm sales. What has been the impact of that on both your policies in firearm sales and, uh, and in demand? Well, our hearts go out to all of those who are affected by the tragedy. Uh, and we have always worked to be the most responsible firearms retailer in the country. We go above and beyond all of the requirements uh, that, are requ by, that are required by law. And we work hard to make sure that we are responsible and that our uh, customers who buy the firearms are responsible by giving them all locking devices, giving discounts on uh, safes when they do buy a firearm and making sure that we do background checks and get a completed background check on all customers. Mm, important to note. Finally, on inventories, uh, how full are you? Uh, do you feel like you have the right merchandise to sell through? Or are you having to do markdowns? We are in very good uh, inventory position. There's a couple of areas, one of which is uh, like cleats that are a little more challenged in terms of not having enough. But uh, we do not have a big problem with inventory. We have uh, right now 9% more inventory than we had in 2019, and our sales are up over 35% over that time period. So We've been able, our team has done a great job managing the inventory, and we don't see any gluts in our inventory. All right. Important work to do. Ken Hicks, CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors. Thank you. Thank you, John. Now coming up, it's been a rough year for semiconductors as companies navigate the ongoing chip shortage. But there are signs that it could resolve soon. The details and the company's poised to benefit next. Welcome back. There's some early signs the chip shortage might be easing. Christina Patsonevelis is at the NASDAQ with a look at companies that could soon be seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Christina. Soon, soon, right? Well, we've got Daimler truck, BMW, Ford, all expect the chip crunch to abate later this year. You even have NVIDIA's CEO that said he expects better availability of GPU gaming units ahead of the holidays. Even semiconductor inventory levels are increasing. Days of inventory increased to 95 days in Q1 of this year, up from the 77-day medium just over the past decade. So how else are chip makers shaking off this crunch that has plagued the industry for almost two years? Well, of course, you've got the easing of lockdowns in Shanghai. Then you've got foundry capacity that's growing quickly around the globe. For example, Taiwan Semiconductor is aggressively adding supply, which helps customers like AMD, Qualcomm, and Apple. But another concerning contributor a slowdown in demand. New April data shows semi-revenue growth is decelerating on weakening units. You can see it just on the far right-hand side of your screen. And that's why Piper Sandler downgraded Micron since 50% of its business is exposed to end consumer-like markets like PCs and handsets, while Citi lowered their sales estimate for Intel due to weakening PC demand. And it's not all peachy for the chip supply chain. You have microchip CEO who said they will prioritize equipment manufacturers over other customers, whereas Intel CEO t told CNBC that he thinks the shortage will extend into next year because of the impact on equipment, not chips. So many are still concerned about the supply shortage in chip-making equipment. 
Even if these makers get the chips, they're still facing issues getting other materials and labor to build the chip making machines. So I guess we can't win it all, right, John? Yeah, I guess part of what you're saying there is there's a, a difference too in process technology, whether you're doing the cutting edge manufacturing that goes into smartphones and PCs or you know, the older stuff that goes into cars and appliances. Which is why there's a discrepancy. So for the lagging, which is you're referring to the auto sector, there's even concerns that eventually in the near term there may be a backlog or, uh, sorry, an over uh, uh, increase of inventory because they've been holding on for so long. But yes, there is a difference between both yeah. supply chains. Important data. Christina, thank you. And that'll do it for The Exchange. Power Lunch starts now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.